Well, good morning. We come together this morning as God's people to worship Him, to sing to Him, to hear His Word. It is good to be together. Uh, this morning being the first Sunday of the month, we will observe uh, the Lord's Supper. So if you have not picked up a communion cup from the foyer, the table in the foyer out there, I encourage you to do that uh, before we will celebrate that at the end of the service. But at some point, if you want to slip out and do that, that would be uh, great. If you are a guest with us, we are glad that you've joined us uh, to worship the Lord. Uh, we would love to talk to you more about, um, not really us, we'd really love to talk to you more about who Jesus is and why it is that we would gather to to sing to Him and to learn about Him. And so if you're a guest, uh, I'll be out in the back, uh, out, outside the auditorium afterward. I would love to meet you, or there's a place on the bulletin where you can uh, use a QR code to, uh, to reach out. But as we come to worship today, I want to read, to call us to worship, uh, the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning. You are the Lord whose throne is heaven, and the earth is but your footstool. And all of the greatest things that we could ever achieve in this life do not compare to who you are and to what you have done. And so, God, we pray today as we come to worship you, to sing your praise, to bring our requests to you, to hear your word, that we would be humble, that we would be contrite in spirit, that we would tremble at your word, that you might look with favor upon us. God, give us grace to exalt you to magnify you as you deserve, and to exalt our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand before we begin to sing? Uh, let's just take a moment uh, to greet those around us.
week uh, to pray together like this and we don't uh, always say why it's because together we're not merely just to sing and to receive God's word as he speaks but we are to bring our requests to him we intercede for those among us and in our society and in other churches uh, asking for the Lord's grace and help before we do that I want to just uh, make a few announcements. I do want to say a quick thank you. I know last week we thanked those who set up for the, uh, the praise banquet for our missions conference. 
I want to say a quick thank you to our missions committee. Uh, these folks work all year long to make sure that communications go to and from our missionaries, our partners around the world, and they worked extremely hard uh, and helped facilitate what was uh, really a wonderful missions conference over these last two weeks. And so I want to say a thank you to Tim and Karen Samford, uh, to Jim Schweikert, to Gary and Mary Jane Strange, to Artis Toll, and to Hannah Wigman. Would you help me to say thank you to them? And if you, if you did not stay for the praise banquet last week, uh, thank you. There were a lot of leftovers to go home then because you didn't come. But uh, anyway, <laughs> we announced there the initial amount of our praise offering. Every year in conjunction with our missions conference, we give a special offering. Our goal this year was $40,000, and as of last Sunday morning, we had given $51,925, and so we praise the Lord for His great grace in that. Uh, tonight will be our monthly prayer service at 7 o'clock in the Fellowship Hall. I hope that you will make it a priority to be here for that. If you've been around for a while or if you're brand new to us and you want to know uh, what it means, what we believe, what it means to be a member here, our next Discovering Church membership class will begin on Wednesday night, October 25th. So we just ask that you sign up. There's a place to do that in the bulletin, or you can just contact the church office. All right, before we pray, let me read from Psalm 86, verses 3 to 7. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are abounding in steadfast love. You are the God who saves. And we give praise to you this morning, and we glorify you this morning. We magnify you this morning. We exalt you this morning. You are the reason we gather. You are the reason we sing. You are the reason we have hope in this world. And for that, we give you praise and thanks. And this morning, we come because we know the reality of the words that Jesus spoke, that in this world you will have troubles. And you have told us that we can cast our cares on you because you care for us. And so we come to do that. We come praying for Ellen, Spencer, and Steve and their family as they grieve the loss of Ellen's mother. We pray, God, they will know that you are near. They will know your mercy in these days. And God, we thank you that in the midst of grief, of this grief, that there is hope because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. 
Lord, we thank you for the successful surgery for Larry Wolf, and we pray that you will help him to recover completely. We pray, Lord, for Tim Mayer as he deals with uh, working through more tests to figure out the possibilities of dementia, and we pray, God, that you will give him grace and peace and strength and do the same for his wife, Deborah, and for their family. Lord, we pray for the Huxleys. We pray you'll give them peace and grace and strength in their ongoing difficulties. We thank you for the way that you are at work and have been at work in them, in their bodies, in their souls, and we pray you will continue to do so. We thank you that Greg Andrews is back home. We pray, Lord, that you would intervene so that his leg heals. We pray that you would grant Norma and the family grace as they care for him. Lord, these, these burdens we bring to you, for you are the only one who can do anything about them, really. And we trust that in each case, your ordained purposes are for your glory and for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so we pray that you will make that clear in each circumstance. We thank you for our partners in Guatemala, the Purcells, and for your intervention in Brenda's health, for just the miraculous way that you have intervened. And saved her from ongoing heart problems. Lord, we pray that would be a testimony to those around them. That such intervention and such healing is only a small taste of the greatness of what you have done in Jesus. We pray you'll sustain her and Randy as they continue to encourage pastors to stay faithful in the task. We thank you for the privilege of operating a school ministry, and we pray your grace in it. We pray for the teachers and the staff that they will be examples of what it means to follow Jesus, that there will be the reality of your gospel in their instruction and the reality of your gospel in their correction of young ones that you will save boys and girls and moms and dads, and that those who are Christians who are struggling, that we might be able to minister to them in a special way. We thank you for our brothers and sisters at Grace Bible Church in Whiteland, and we pray for them this morning. We pray for the elders there, for the members there. We pray that they will cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that they will uphold the authority and sufficiency of your word. We pray, God, that you would fill them with a desire for holiness, that they, as a community of believers, will abound in love toward one another and in gospel love to the lost. And Lord, we are called on to pray for those who are most influential in our society. And this morning, we pray for the circuit and superior courts here in Marion County. We pray, God, that they will administer righteous judgment, that you will give judges discernment between truth 
and error, that there would be no favoritism. God, that you would free them from uh, political motivations as they make judgments that affect people's lives so that justice will be established in our city. God, we know that we deserve your just judgment, that you are the true judge of all mankind. And we are overwhelmed with thankfulness that your justice was poured out on Jesus on the cross so that we might be set free, so that we might be forgiven, and so that we might have hope. Help us now to sing as those who know that hope. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing together. I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me on the cruel cross He suffered the curse to set me free. Sing, oh sing, of my Redeemer, with His blood He purchased me.
chapter 12 says this this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah behold 
my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. In the name of Jesus, all the world has hope. God has promised from the beginning to bring salvation, to bring redemption. Let's sing about that fulfilled promise this morning. Let's sing Joy Has Dawned. What a Savior, what a friend, what a 
Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible and need one, there should be a black hardbound Bible uh, somewhere in the pews around you. And Matthew chapter 1 is found on page 807 of that Bible. Before the missions conference, we were in the midst of a series walking through the storyline of the Bible. And a few weeks ago, our last uh, time before the, our last sermon before then was uh, finishing up the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to recount the whole story of the Old Testament just now, but I will say this that at the end, after having been in exile for 70 years because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their refusal to repent, God brings His people back into the land. But even still, even after all that, even after having to suffer that punishment, even after experiencing the mercy of being brought back, the people are still unfaithful. The geographical exile is over, yes, but the spiritual exile remains. Sin still separates God and mankind. And yet throughout the Old Testament, there hangs a promise in the air, seen in words, seen in pictures, seen in people, that God will send a Savior to reconcile mankind to Himself, not just the Jews but the entire world. And that promise begins to be fulfilled with the arrival of Jesus. And what we have in Matthew 1 is the story of one of the stories of His birth. So Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is what the Spirit of God says to us. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Our Father, we come to Your Word this morning. 
We know that of all the words that we have heard this week, of all the words we hear in our lives, the word we need most is the word that you have given us in your word, written for us. And so we ask today for the help of your Spirit who inspired these words to help us to understand them, and in understanding them, to see Jesus. Not merely to see the babe born in Bethlehem, but to see the Lord of history. By your Spirit, work through your servant so that your word is understood by your people for your glory. Strengthen your church. And God, would you call the lost home to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in Jesus' ministry, as you read the Gospels, one of the things that you will take note of is the fact that Jesus asks a lot of questions. He doesn't ask questions because he is curious. He doesn't ask questions because he needs to gain information. He actually asks questions to get to the heart of those who are listening to him. So he'll ask things like, what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or he'll ask, if you love those who love you, what good is that for you? One of the most important questions that Jesus asked actually comes later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 16. It's a question uh, that, that Jesus aims at the heart of his disciples. And it's a question that gets to the heart of not only Matthew's gospel, but the New Testament, indeed the Bible, indeed the whole Christian faith. Jesus looks them in the eye and says, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? There is no question more important than that one. I mean, when we talk to people about our Christian faith, they may have all manner of questions when they first learn that we are Christians, right? Questions about what we think about all of the things that are going on in society, all of the topics that are being discussed. What is it that you think as a Christian about sexuality or about gender or about abortion or about marriage or about a host of other subjects, all of which are very important and all of which the Bible speaks to? We can't pretend that the Bible doesn't speak to these things. But the heart of Christianity is found in answering this question, who is Jesus? And actually answering that question is at the heart of Matthew's gospel. And it's at the heart of this account of Jesus' birth. In it, as Matthew tells the story, we see him begin to answer the question, who is Jesus? And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. As we look at this account of Jesus' birth, I don't simply want to retell the story to you. You can read it. It's very plain and simple. 
What I want you to see is what I think Matthew is after, which is to begin to unfold who it is that this Jesus actually is. And the first thing he shows us is that Jesus is unique. He's unique. His birth story testifies that he is unique. Now, throughout the Bible, there are miraculous birth stories, right? There are these stories where a barren woman, she cannot have children, but God comes and intervenes and opens her womb so that she can have children, right? Uh, uh, women like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and even Mary's relative, Elizabeth, and more. But there are actually a number of those. So while they're spectacular, they're not technically unique because God does it a number of times. Jesus' birth, on the other hand, is unique. And this uniqueness is found in a couple of things that we see here in the text. First, He is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, the second half of it, you see that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Without that last phrase, you don't fully understand what's going on. Mary's found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then when the angel comes to Joseph in a dream, the angel says to him in verse 20, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that this baby is from the Holy Spirit? Well, it absolutely does not mean that there was some sort of physical interaction between God and Mary. So just put that out of your mind. What it means is that the power of the Holy Spirit comes on Mary in such a way that a child is conceived in her womb. Now, if you hear that and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I got that. I understand that completely. <laughs> then you're not hearing me right. The power of the Holy Spirit comes on Mary in such a way that she simply conceives, and there is now a baby in her womb. It is one of those things that ought to leave you scratching your head as smoke comes out your ears. This is, be, this is, this is amazing. This is beyond our imagination, isn't it? It's mind-blowing. But this is what Matthew says of Jesus. The second thing he says that shows that he is unique, it's closely related to that, is that Jesus is born of a virgin. Now, in the other miraculous birth stories in the Bible, God opens the womb of a woman who is the wife of a husband. And then, after God intervenes through the natural course of intimacy between a husband and wife, she then conceives and has a baby. But here we have, I mean, God leaves no doubt as to the fact that this had to be by the power of the Holy Spirit because Mary is unmarried. She's betrothed, but the marriage is not full. It is not consummated yet. She has never experienced uh, sexual intimacy to this point, and yet she conceives and gives birth. Now, that is also clear in the text. Look at verse 18. Notice when she was found to be with child, before they came together, before they came together. And then, 
after they were married is when Matthew says that is when intimacy began. Look at verse 25. Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. That language strongly says that after Jesus is born, the marriage of Mary and Joseph is just like every other marriage enjoying physical intimacy. This is why Jesus has brothers and sisters. So for those that you may know who want to try and claim a kind of perpetual virginity of Mary, this is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, yes, she was a virgin until she gave birth. And then she and her husband enjoyed marriage as every other couple does. Okay? So, Jesus is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is born of a virgin. <laughs> nobody has a birth story like Jesus, right? I mean, nobody has that birth. Your mom has a birth story, right, about, about pregnancy, about birth, about how, you know, I gave, I was in labor for 18 hours and they wouldn't give me anything to drink and they wouldn't give me anything to eat. You know, these kinds of things. And some, some moms are very open with every single detail that I never wanted to know about any woman's pregnancy or any woman's birth. All I need to know is you pregnant, gave birth. That's it. I just need the facts. That's all I need. That way, just look, when I show up at the hospital, I don't want that story. I just want to hold the baby. That's all I want to do. Some women are just very open with it. Some women will tell their birth stories, you know, to a pregnant stranger at Walmart. Oh, let me tell you how my pregnancy went. Maybe you've been that pregnant stranger and somebody at Walmart told you their story. And then they pat your belly. I don't know why any human being would touch a stranger's belly for no apparent reason just because it is bulging with a baby on the inside. Now, I never, I don't know my birth story. My mom died when I was very young. Maybe you don't know your birth story, but we all have them. And one thing is for sure, no matter how unusual, strange, unique your birth story seems, none of them are like this. None of them are like this. No human being has ever been born this way, and none ever will. Jesus is unique, and the uniqueness of Jesus isn't just found in His birth. It goes on, and you can see it over and over again in His ministry and in His life. Look, there is no other human being that has changed human history like Jesus. He is unique. Here's the thing. There is no other human being that you and I must come to terms with. You don't ever have to settle what you think about any historical figure and the decisions they made and the lives that they lead. But you have to come to grips with this one because Jesus is unique. The second thing that Matthew shows us is that Jesus is God with us. He is not merely a unique human being. He is more than that. Look at verse 22. All this took place 
to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, uh, just as an aside, Matthew is very interested in his Jewish audience knowing that the things that happened in Jesus' life are connected to prophecies in the Old Testament. So an interesting uh, study for you to do would be just to take a pen and start at the beginning of Matthew, and every time you see those words, this was to fulfill, you mark it. And you'll find, especially in the first part of Matthew, you'll find it over and over and over and over and over again. But what he says is, is that this Jesus, this unique human being is actually Emmanuel, God with us. Now, the name Emmanuel was not used on a day-to-day basis. It wasn't like that was his name growing up or people when he was… It wasn't like a nickname. This, this name is actually a statement of his character. It's a statement of his identity. It's a statement of who he is. And who he is, is God with us. Now, you say, now, wait a second. I thought God was omnipresent. I mean, God's everywhere. So, in a sense, God is everywhere, so God is, God is with us, right? Well, yes, but this phrase, God with us, actually carries with it a much more significant idea, an idea that's actually connected to the whole storyline of the Bible. You see, in the garden, Adam and Eve are with God, not just geographically because they're in the garden, but relationally. They are with Him. They enjoy unbroken fellowship with God. But then, when they rebel against God and sin enters the picture, that relationship is broken. They are no longer with God in relationship, and as a demonstration of that, they are cast out of God's presence, out of the garden. They will not even geographically be with God in that garden. Now, we understand that kind of language because it's the kind of language that people use at the end of like a dating relationship, right? So, if somebody's dating another person and you haven't seen them for a while and you say, oh, so how are things going with so-and-so? They say, oh, I'm no longer with him, right? I'm no longer with her. Like in the high school hallway, somebody may say that and then go into the geometry class with that person, but I'm no longer with her, right? In the relationship kind of way. That is, that is the kind of with that we see uh, in this phrase, God with us. So after sin enters the picture, God, mankind is no longer with God. But this separation won't be permanent. The story of the Bible goes on, and in many ways, the whole story of the Bible can be this. God was with us. God, we were with God. We were not with God. So God came to be with us. So that by the end, in the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, when all of human history is resolved... We can read this in Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. 
And between the garden in the book of Genesis and the glory in the book of Revelation, between the time when the width was broken and the time the width is forever restored, stands Jesus, who is the key to getting from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. He is God with us to reconcile us to God. So John says that He is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And Isaiah quotes this prophecy to underline that this is no merely unique human being. This is God with us. This is the creator of the universe putting on creation, putting on the flesh that He created in order to dwell with us, in order to redeem us. Now, this whole idea of Jesus being God with us is it is not easy. It is not easy to accept. It is not easy to believe. You know, I mean, lots of people uh, are willing to accept that Jesus is a great teacher. There are lots of things He said. Love one another. Hello, I'll take it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'll take that one too. All the religious people are bad. I'll take that one too. They'll like, they like him as a moral example, right? He cares for the outcast. He cares for the ones that people forget. I like him as an example as well. I even like him as a miracle worker. But then when this whole idea of Jesus being God comes up, that's too much. Do you know why people struggle with that? There's an answer. And the answer is not intellectual. The answer is spiritual. The answer lies in the spiritual reality of the person, but also in the spiritual reality of the one that the Bible calls the devil. You see, the devil would be very glad for you to listen to Jesus teach. He's fine with that. He's actually okay with you thinking Jesus is a good example for you to follow and for you to be in awe of Jesus as He works miracles. But dear friend, the devil will fight tooth and nail to make sure that you don't see that Jesus is God with us. Because the moment you see Jesus for who He really is, the devil has lost. Because you know what his goal is? Keep us blind. It's what 2 Corinthians says. Paul writes, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In other words, we can't see the deity of Jesus Naturally, we can't see that He is God on our own. We need God, as it were, to pry the devil's hand from our eyes so that we can see it. 
And so if you are here this morning wanting to figure this out, wanting to figure out who Jesus really is, I want to both encourage you and warn you, you cannot do it on your own. You can't fully see. You can read all these words. You can tell me what, the, what that sentence is saying, but it will not be beautiful and wonderful and lovely and life-giving to you unless God does something in you. And so ask Him to do that. For those of you who've been sharing the gospel with friends or who uh, are trying to teach your children, you're pleading with for your child's salvation or your friend's salvation or your neighbor's salvation or your spouse's salvation or your grandparent's salvation or your parent's salvation. Let me just assure you that there is no clever way, there is no more intellectual way to explain who Jesus is that will get through to their heart. Now, you ought to speak in ways that are understandable. You ought to speak in loving ways. You ought to do all that you can to explain what the Bible says about Jesus to the best of your ability. But at the end of the day, you and I can't change the hearts of another person. We can't even change our own hearts. You don't simply need to be talking to people about Jesus. You need to be talking to Jesus about the people and pleading with God. Open their eyes, oh God. The other thing that that reality should actually do is humble us whose eyes have been opened. Dear friend, you are not a Christian because you figured it out. You are not a Christian because you are smarter. You are not a Christian because you know more things than other people. You are not a Christian because you are morally better than anybody else. You are only a Christian because God pried the devil's hand off your eyes so that you could see the glory of Jesus. That'll make you sing louder. That'll make you live differently. Jesus isn't just the Sunday school answer. He's the answer. He is God with us. Thirdly, Matthew shows us that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of David, Son of David. Now, Matthew says that explicitly. If you look back in verse 1, you see the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. And then verses 1 to 17, this is not uncommon in the Jewish world to justify your, your, who you are through your genealogy. So he, it runs from Abraham through David to Joseph. And notice it says uh, uh, Joseph in verse 16, Joseph the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born. Very carefully, not confusing the whole notion of the virgin birth. But it's actually Joseph that comes to the forefront in this account. If you read Luke's account, Mary's in the front, right? Angel comes to Mary. She goes, Mary visits her relative. Mary sings a song of praise. Mary is treasuring up all these things in her heart. But here in Matthew, it's Joseph. 
Joseph is in the forefront. And Joseph is called, in verse 20, son of David. Now, uh, just to be clear, um, that is not in the same way that my three sons, each of them could say, I am son of Toby. That's not what that means. Son here is more a word that, that just means descendant. He is a descendant of David. He is in the line of David, which is what the genealogy is meant to show. But it is as son of David that Joseph actually establishes Jesus as a legal, legitimate son of David. But it has all these twists and turns, right? In verse 18, it starts out that Mary and Joseph are betrothed. Now, that is far more serious than our modern-day understanding of engagement, right? You know, if somebody's going to break off an engagement, all they got to do is walk in, you know, throw the ring in your face and walk out. I mean, I hope that didn't happen to you, but that's all they really have to do. There's no legal, you know, the ring's really the only connection there. But betrothal is far different. Betrothal, there was a legal contract signed, and it bound them together in such a way that verse 19 calls Joseph Mary's husband. He's as good as her husband because they are betrothed. So if one of these people were to step out and go commit sexual immorality with another person during the betrothal period, it would be considered adultery. If you're betrothed and the other person dies, you are considered a widow. That is how serious this commitment actually is. So, in verse 18, when Joseph learns of Mary's pregnancy, he doesn't have the little phrase, from the Holy Spirit. All he has is the baby bump. And the only explanation that makes sense is adultery. And so in, he's wrestling with this because verse 19 says he's a just man. I mean, he lives his life by the law. He lives an upright life. If he goes ahead with the marriage, it'll be like he is admitting that he sinned, like he's the one who got her pregnant. What is he going to do? Well, he decides... Divorce. Divorce is the way that I'll go, which was allowed because of sexual immorality. But he doesn't want to shame her. He doesn't want to drag her name through the mud. So that's why verse 19 says he resolved to divorce her quietly, privately. And yet before the divorce papers were drawn up, God intervenes in this angelic dream. And the angel tells Joseph in verses 20 and 21, don't fear. God is actually at work here. God is the one who put that baby in her womb. So take her to be your wife. Take the child to be your son. Call him Jesus. And that's what he does. Look at verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, interestingly, in Luke, it just says that he was called Jesus. They don't actually, Luke doesn't describe the naming part, but Matthew does. 
Joseph is the one who names him Jesus. So rather than divorce Mary privately, he takes her to be his wife publicly. Rather than leave this child fatherless, Joseph names him. And in naming him, he officially accepts him and adopts him. And he shares his legal status as son of David with Jesus. Now, that's amazing. Now, to our ears, it's like, oh, okay. I mean, that's a whole, that's a long, that's a long route to say he's the son of David. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because being son of ba- a son of David is one of the crucial pieces in the entire story of the Bible. Because in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that he will have a son who will sit on his throne, that he will be a great king, and that he will be an eternal king. And that promise blossoms as the Old Testament goes on. I mean, you can find it all over the prophets. This king is going to come. He's going to deliver his people. He's going to reign in justice and in righteousness. I mean, this whole notion of son of David... It is lodged in the Jewish mind and in the Jewish heart. That's why the Pharisees know what everybody's talking about when they call Jesus Son of David. And since this is a gospel that was primarily written for Jewish people, I mean, just think about this. For us, I mean, we're Gentiles. We're wondering why Matthew went to all this trouble, but the Jew wouldn't wonder. Matthew goes to great lengths to make sure that it's very clear that Jesus is not just son of David through his mother's line. The father's line in that culture would be primary. And so Matthew goes to great lengths to show that even through the father's line, through this legal adoption, here is the son of David. All of the, I mean, just think about this. From, from the discovery of the pregnancy to the contemplation of divorce, to the angelic intervention, to the response of obedience. Do you know what this means? God will not fail to keep His promises. God will accomplish every single purpose that he has said he will accomplish. No purpose of God will be thwarted. His plan to save the world is on track. His plan to work all of human history to the end, to the new heavens and the new earth and the glory of King Jesus ruling over all and the reward of the faithful and the condemnation of evil. It's all on track. This little bitty story that seems like nothing is a megaphone of testimony about the faithfulness of God. And this God who did all of this, do you know who this is? He's the same God today. He's the same God that we trust. He's the same God who says He holds us in His hand. He's the same God who says He'll work all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. 
So when we hear that promise and we look at our lives, we're like, these things don't seem to be going together right now. Do you know what we need to do then? Remember Joseph. Remember what God did in Joseph's life. Remember how even when he, was, he had no clue what was going on and he seemed to be completely confused by his circumstances, God worked to keep his promises. That should stir joy in our hearts. Because it gives glory to God who keeps his word. So when it's hard to believe, remember Jesus, son of David. The fourth and final thing that, that Matthew shows us about Jesus in this account is that Jesus is our Savior. The angel says to Joseph in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, in the very name Jesus, we see his mission. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. But this baby will not merely be a reminder that the Lord saves. This baby is the Lord who will save. Remember who he is. He is God with us. And in Psalm 130, verse 8, the Bible says of God, He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Who is it that saves from sin? God. God doesn't send someone who's not God to go redeem from sin because only God can deal with sin. And so Jesus is this unique human being who is God with us, who has come in fulfillment of the promise to save His people now, the word save in the New Testament is actually, and in the Gospels is actually used a few different ways. Sometimes it's used to talk about uh, danger, you know, save us from danger. It's also used to talk about disease, like being made well. It sometimes uses the same Greek word that we translate as save, save us from disease. Or save us from the experience of death. So it's used for all these things. And actually... These are the kinds of things that people would really prefer Jesus do, right? This is the main thing in their minds. The main thing Jesus needs to do in my life is save me from danger, save me from disease, and, in and, and, and make my life longer. But actually, that's not the main reason that Jesus came. The angel says, not just he will save his people... You have to read all the way to the end of these sentences. He will save his people from their sins. You see, danger, disease, death, physical death, these are symptoms. These are symptoms. Jesus came to deal with the real problem, the problem out of which all these things spring. Why is there danger? Because of sin. Why is there disease? Because of sin. Why is there physical? Because of sin. So Jesus came to deal with the heart of the problem and not merely the symptoms of the problem. And actually we see that priority in the ministry of Jesus. So uh, one day there are these four men who come along and they're carrying their friend to Jesus. He's a paralytic. 
and Jesus has had this wildly successful um, healing ministry in Capernaum. So they bring him. They can't get in the house, so they go up top, and they dig through this roof, and they lower him down. And they're like, all right, let's watch and see what Jesus does. Watch, he's going to be up playing third base again very, very soon. Jesus looks at him and says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now look, if you went to the ER this afternoon, this afternoon you went to the ER because you can't feel your legs anymore. And you go in there and the doctor comes in and says, let's talk about your sin for just a minute. You would be wildly confused by that. No doubt that's the kind of thing that swept over the crowd, but it was an indication that the paralyzation is just a symptom. The real problem, the deep problem, the pervasive problem, the problem that will go beyond death is not paralysis. It's sin. In another case, there's a woman, she had a reputation around town, you know, that kind of reputation, and she came to Jesus and she washed his feet with her tears. And he looks at her, And he says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, oh, nobody should talk bad about you. He doesn't say, oh, you know, this or that or the other. He just looks at her and he gets right to the heart of the problem and he says, your biggest problem is not what other people are saying about you. Your biggest problem is the sin that separates you from God. Your sins are forgiven. Her reputation in that town may never change, you know that? But her sins are forgiven. And then we see that underlined again as Jesus gets to the end of his life and he gathers with his disciples for one last Passover meal. He takes the cup and this is what he tells them in Matthew 26. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, words don't actually convey forgiveness. But, uh, forgiveness before God is not merely a matter of words. It is a matter of sacrifice. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system says so. Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus walks around, when he says to the paralytic, take heart, your sins are forgiven. When he says to the woman with a reputation, your sins are forgiven. He's not just saying words. He's saying words that he is going to accomplish when he goes to the cross. And that's what he does after that Passover meal. He goes to the cross and he lays down his life willingly to shed his blood, to secure forgiveness for all his people, for all who will come to him by faith, for all who will turn to him. Dear friend, Jesus didn't die on the cross to make forgiveness possible. Jesus died on the cross to make forgiveness certain. And if you come to him and confess your sin and your need, he will freely forgive you. You can know you are forgiven. You can know that your slate has been wiped clean. You can know that your account has been settled with God because Jesus has died 
and risen again. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, the story of Jesus' birth is no ordinary story. It tells us who he is, that he's unique because of his miraculous birth. But more than that, he is God with us. He is the promised son of David sent to save us from our sins through his death on the cross. Dear dear Christian, this reminder of who Jesus is should stir fresh love for him in your heart. It should give you renewed motivation to know him and to grow in knowing him. It should empower your joyful singing to him on Sunday morning. It, It should renew your commitment to live for him at your workplace to speak for Him uh, with unbelieving people, to suffer for Him when you are opposed. This is who Jesus is. And at the end of life, all of us who live for Jesus, who suffer for Jesus, who die in Jesus, will say, Jesus is worth it. This Jesus. And those who aren't Christians, look. Look at this. Look at this. This is who Jesus is according to Matthew's gospel. This is who Jesus is according to the whole of the Bible. This is who Jesus is according to the testimony of all of church history. But the question is, who do you say Jesus is? The answer to that question has implications for your life because if you believe that this is who Jesus is, then you must turn from your sin and trust Him. You must obey Him. You must live for Him. You must follow Him. This is no joke. This is not just something written. If you really believe this, it will change the way that you live. So who do you say that Jesus is? The answer to that question also has implications for the life after death the life after this life. Because if we get Jesus wrong, if we say, you know, he is unique, but I'm not so sure about him being God. If we get him wrong, friends, we get nothing that he promises. No forgiveness. No heaven. No eternal life. Because the Jesus we will have come up with and said, well, I don't like this part of Jesus, but I like this part. That will be our own Jesus, and he is impotent. But this Jesus can save you. So, who do you say that Jesus is? Don't brush off that question. The answer changes everything. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray together. Oh God, we marvel at the fact that you dwell in unapproachable light and you work in ways that are beyond our imagination that we cannot put together with our own human intellect. And we pause to marvel at Jesus Christ, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, God with us, the Son of David, who came to save us from our sin. 
what good news that is, Lord. Because we desperately need to be saved from our sin. Lord, I pray for all of us who are trusting in Jesus that that these truths about Jesus, that we wouldn't just give them lip service, but they would stir new and greater affections and change the way we live day by day because of who he is and what he has done for us. And for those among us who don't know Jesus, oh God, would you pry the devil's hand off their eyes so that they will see the unique Son of God, Son of David, Savior of the world. We praise you for this truth. And we do it all in Jesus' name. Amen.